Welcome to She Inspires Me. I'm your host, Caroline Bruni, founder of She Inspires Me and Organize Curate Design. Launched as a Facebook passion project back in 2017, She Inspires Me was reborn as a podcast in 2020 to highlight the incredible women we all encounter in our everyday lives. Thanks to our key sponsor, Organize Curate Design, I welcome you to season two, another year of sharing the stories of inspirational women. Well, here we are. We are officially at episode 20 of season two of She Inspires Me. Before we get stuck into today's episode, I just wanted to jump in your ears and just say thank you. There are some of you out there who I know listen to every single episode, every single Wednesday. And considering that we have released 40 episodes since we launched this podcast in 2020, I, yeah, maybe I just don't have enough words anymore. Maybe I've used them all um, throughout all of these episodes. But the first word that comes to mind for me is that I am incredibly grateful for you, for your time, for your ears, for your thoughts. Um, I have some of you who reach out to me um, and let me know, you know, what insights that you've gained from, you know, different episodes how you have implemented things that you've learned from some of our guests uh, to make some real changes in your life and just how certain things have made you laugh or cry or have really moved you in different ways and and that is the power of storytelling that is the power of these incredible women who I have the pleasure of meeting with and speaking with and sharing their stories with you so, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I do have a request. If you haven't subscribed yet um, and you somehow still manage to listen to our episodes, please subscribe uh, using your podcast app, um, be it Apple or Spotify. That's probably the main two that most of you use. Uh, If you could leave us a review, that would be incredible because it really helps us identify what's working well and it also from a podcasting perspective helps other people find out about the podcast and the episodes so if you could do that for me that would be just so good and lastly there are some people in your world who may really appreciate the podcast as a whole each and every episode and there are some that may appreciate specific episodes so if you can think of something that you've heard or an interview that I've done, um, all the podcasts, as I said, as a whole, use the share feature on your podcast app and send it to someone via a text or a WhatsApp or whatever else. I would really love to get these women into more people's ears. And I think the easiest way of doing that is to just share the love. So once again, thank you. Today is episode 20, which means we are wrapping up season two of She Inspires Me. I'm about to take a mini break from this particular podcast as I have already started working on a completely different podcast that we are launching under the banner of Organized Curate Design. If you are curious to see what we're up to, keep an eye on the Organized Curate Design uh, social media handles. Uh, We will be able to share more with you in the coming weeks and months as um, 
we continue to work on that project. Now, enjoy today's episode. I hope that you gain some insights from it just as you have probably in our previous episodes. Thank you again for being such a dedicated listener and I will speak to you again soon on the next season of She Inspires Me. Hi everyone. As you would have heard in the audio that you just heard, today is the last episode of She Inspires Me for season two. I'm not surprised um, that just due to the way that the schedule has played out that episode one of She Inspires Me season two was with the founder of Brave Hearts where we talked about childhood sexual abuse and by chance today's episode is touching on similar topics. So I am here in your ears just one more time before we share our my interview with Christine to give you a trigger warning and make sure that you are one only with adults when you listen to today's episode there is some really sensitive content and topics that are not suitable for young children I encourage you to make sure that you are in a space where you are comfortable listening to some really distressing and confronting information. Um, We touched today on childhood sexual abuse, human trafficking um, and prostitution. So these are not easy topics to listen to and they often shatter our sense of reality, our sense of humanity, our sense of all of the things that happen in the world that we would quite happily ignore but know that they exist. Christine does a brilliant job whilst sharing her story and the story of the work that she does to bring a real light and shade to this interview. We do have some laughs. It is not, not all doom and gloom but before you start listening, please just be mindful of the content we will be discussing. If you do find today's episode difficult um, and you need some mental health support, I have made sure that we've put the details for Lifeline in our show notes where you can seek some support. And of course, you're welcome to always reach out to us, um, be it myself through the She Inspires Me um, social media accounts or with Christine, who obviously has a lot of experience in this space and, and can point you in the right direction. This is a brilliant episode. It um, is one that I'm really proud of and I am really grateful to be sharing Christine's story as we wrap up season two. Enjoy, be kind to yourself, go with love, and I will speak to you all soon. Welcome to another episode of She Inspires Me. Today we are jumping into episode 20 of season two, which is formally the last episode of our season. I am incredibly grateful for um, my guest today who's joining me because we are both in a snap lockdown. So welcome, Christine Teo. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, Now we have 
been juggling life. I think we've both rescheduled this podcast episode. I don't even know how many times. I think I've lost count. Um, We've both had to reschedule. (laughs) Um, But that's just life. And and I think, you know, we've got a lot to chat about today, um, but we like to keep it pretty real and and we're releasing this episode really sometimes i record and we release like a lot later but mm. you know we're recording the saturday before the wednesday of release so it's well and truly in the in the time that we release this we will still be in our lockdown um and our snap lockdown here in victoria and it's totally cool i think it's just a a part of life mm. now you have such an incredible in interesting background and story. So I'm going to share with our listeners a little bit about you now and um, and then we'll get stuck into just all of the questions I have for you. So right. Christine Teo, <laughs> sounds good. Um, so Christine Teo is a senior government advisor, a social worker, an entrepreneur, human rights advocate, policy writer, educator, visionary and public speaker. Christine is currently a senior advisor at the Mental Health Division in the Department of Health. She is also a f- the founder of Cakes That Care and Generation 414, a social enterprise that provides dignified employment to support to survivors of human trafficking through the sale of their handmade products. This business concept for Generation 414 was birthed out of a tour through Southeast Asia. One summer break, Christine was brutally confronted with the way that local women were callously treated by male tourists. At night, Streets were lined with school-aged girls selling their bodies for cash. Christine was often approached by male tourists and mistaken to be a prostitute during her visit because of her Asian descent. This infuriated her and it was this anguish that led her to create Generation 414 to address the issues of sexual exploitation. Christine has international experience in combating sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Christine's work and research in this area has brought her across the United States, Europe and Asia. She is actively involved in many community outreach programs and development programs and provides private consultancy to numerous community development alliances globally, including the likes of Mrs. Martin Luther King III and actively involved in roundtable discussions with UN agencies and government agencies on addressing the issue of trafficking through public policy and legislation. During her stint in the USA, uh, she was invited to apply to work with Senator Bob Corker on his The End of Modern Slavery Initiative Act of 2015, S.5. Five five three, which has passed, which was passed in April two thousand and fifteen. She was involved in legislative work, um, in a legislative working group that presented recommendations to President Jimmy Carter at the World Summit and sec- Sexual Exploitation twenty twenty five. Christine provides consultancy services to several anti. Um, anti-human trafficking organisations on how to be more efficient and effective in their operations using the logical framework approach. Her posting in Asia as the development manager of the A21 campaign, she acquired extensive networks and partnerships across 
the greater Mekong Delta subregion with relevant government and UN agencies, embassies, law enforcement, community coalitions, faith-based organisations and other key stakeholders in developing programs to address the issue of human trafficking. She also ensured that her team provide holistic support to um, survivors of human trafficking through personalised victim-centred support services and trauma-informed care. Christine is currently helping to roll out the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system and the health initiatives due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And Christine is not working. She is baking cupcakes to fundraise for various causes and organisations and community events. Christine often guests lectures at in Victorian universities to social work students to inspire them to be the change they wish to see in the world. She's also a board member and um, and one of the key anti-trafficking organisations here in Victoria, Project Respect. Christine, I, <laughs> I firstly just want to thank you for the work that you've done and continue to do. Um, I think we live in, some of us live in a world where we may live in a really nice bubble where we don't actually know that some of the things that I've even just mentioned and the work that you've done exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice living in a bubble. In some ways it's real because what you believed and what you see and what you experience is your reality. Mm-hmm. But we know that it is far beyond, like the the things that happen in the world are far beyond what some of us can even imagine. And mm. um yeah, it's it's like we you know we were chatting just before we started recording. Like today is a normal day for us. We've you know thought about the kids and groceries, and we're in a lockdown and we're doing life. Yeah. But it isn't necessarily the case for other people. Um, mm. So with this incredibly extensive career as a change maker, has standing up and speaking out always been something that you have done? Like, are you are you that kid that was like, no, that's not right, and I need to do more things, or is this, or has there been like a pivotal moment for you that's headed you in this direction? Yeah, and it was interesting for you to say that, Caroline. And I was reflecting on my life too, growing up because I grew up in Singapore, and. Being, you know, from an Asian descent, there is still that gender inequality where most Chinese parents still prefer to have sons to carry on the family name instead mm-hmm. of daughters. And daughters, uh, they say, girls should be seen and not heard. So I grew up in that kind of culture where mm-hmm. I was, you know, my role was to be in the kitchen. I should not be too educated because I'll get married and have children someday anyway. Yeah. And that if you have something to say, we're not interested in hearing because <laughs> you're a girl, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. So yep. I grew up in that culture, but I was really thankful that um, I went to a convent school. So I had a convent education and compared mm-hmm. to a public school, their culture was very different being in an all-girls school and, and the nuns in the school would just inspire you and tell you you can do whatever, you know, you can. If if you can dream it, you can do it. Mm. And that gender wow. shouldn't prevent you from achieving whatever you want in life. And so even though I lived in a family culture that was quite different, I chose to believe what my school was teaching me. 
and and really in being in that school it, it had a really strong sense of social justice. We're known for that mm-hmm. back in Asia, um, the convent schools. And so it was just part of the growing up, the education that was instilled in us. You know, our, our motto was simple in virtue, steadfast in duty. And, and what are virtues? Virtues are standing up for injustice, speaking out for wrongdoings, helping one another, being caring, being, you know, considerate towards your neighbours and things like that. So I think those virtues were deeply instilled in me throughout my education back in Singapore. Wow. What an incredible contrast of environments, um, Mm. having, you know, your home life where I'm sure in some ways it was spoken like it was said, what the expectations were, but I'm sure that there were a lot of non-verbal cues and and um, environmental situations where you knew that being a woman or a girl meant mm. that you were expected to act and be in a certain way, but to be going to school and then be told almost the opposite um, mm. and and really given the platform and the space to really flourish and thrive. Um, wow, what an incredible, as I said, contrast, but also great opportunity to to start expanding your thought process and um, living through those virtues. Yeah. Now and, and I, I think, um, oh, sorry. No, go, tell us. And, and I think, you know, to, to all the Asian listeners out there, you would, in a sense, if you're a female listen listener, you would kind of understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, when I finished year 12 and my parents were like, why should we continue to spend money on you? You're going to get married someday. (laughs) Um, And and so I was in that position, do I continue education because they weren't going to fund it? But Mm -hmm. somehow I I remember there was a session, um, you know, one of those career sessions Mm-hmm. that you have yep. in school before graduation and they were saying that an education is something that nobody can ever take away from you and an education is the passport to the life that you want to lead and so I had the choice at year 12 whether I stop education and just go get a job as a checkout chick or an admin data entry clerk or I can find ways to work as the data entry clerk and then fund my education. And I pushed really hard to get a degree. Um, and then I think I overcompensated with three masters. <laughs> <laughs> just to prove your point, just I can do this and I'm going to yeah. do it three times over and then a little yeah. bit more. <laughs> yes, and crazy enough to start a doctorate next year. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. And I, I guess I'm curious then, how does that impact or... I don't know if you're still in contact with your family. I don't know if your parents are still alive. I don't know much about you personally. But what does that look like for them or for your family members who have gone, watched you thrive, watched Mm. you really excel in your education and your career? And what does that, what's that experience like? Um, It's, it's been a challenging relationship with the parents because I'm considered the black sheep of the family because <laughs> I do not do what as told. <laughs> yeah, that's and, boring doing what you're told. <laughs> yeah, so in fact, it's like sometimes I think they prefer not to tell me anything because I will go and do the opposite. 
<laughs> so they have to kind of like reverse psychology. So they have to say it would be great for you to go and get another master's or a doctorate and then you're like, oh, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite. So they may need to try and trick you. But so, I think you'd be straight through that. <laughs> yeah. So some, it was like, oh, so when are you going to get your PhD? There was one time I was like, oh, soon enough. <laughs> So, oh, so I love that yeah, answer. It, it's quite <laughs> funny. Um, I think the parents are challenging, but what I've managed to, and because I, I come from quite a large extended family with mm-hmm. cousins and many nephews and nieces, and I feel really privileged that I got the opportunity to inspire and be a role model for the younger cousins and now the nephews and nieces that they can achieve whatever they put their hearts to. Some of them um, are a little bit more familiar with my history and my family upbringing. And they Mm. can see like if we can rise or I could rise above that. I I remember I was at a conference with some of my nephews and nieces and, and I never knew, but they told me when they were growing up, their parents, which were my cousins, used to always tell them off when they didn't do well in school and say, if Auntie Christine, in spite of what she was going through, could excel in school, you've got to put in a little bit more effort, girl. <laughs> that's so great, though. Like, that's a double-edged sword because you you want to look up to Auntie Christine, but then you're like, oh, Auntie Christine, stop succeeding. You're making us look bad. <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes they have really honest conversations t- with me about that, but I guess they always tell me that every time they feel challenged in life or they're going through a really difficult period or season, Mm. they Mm. look at me and they go, look, if she can do it, so can I. Or that Mm. they know that I'm always just a WhatsApp message or just a call away and they could always speak to me. And I I, I think I've got, you know, enough stored bags of encouragement to try and just hold their hand and help them across that difficult season. So I feel very privileged that I can do that for my family. Oh, wow. That is absolutely incredible. And that's a really big part of, you know, the work that a lot of us do. It's about the next generation and giving Mm. them those opportunities and modelling the behaviour that we may not have seen, um, but that is incredibly important to us. Mm. Now, we personally connected through um, the work that you do through Generation 414. We connected Mm. through social media. I actually don't even know how we connected. I don't know the, the specific day or time of how we connected but this is this has brought us to this conversation today yeah I tried but, trolling back Facebook and I couldn't yeah I couldn't work it out either I was like one day I didn't know you and the next day I did and I'm grateful for that so whatever the reason it has been yes, um, the universe you know, had, you know it was meant to be <laughs> <laughs> exactly very much so um now I spoke a little bit about generation 414 when I was sharing your you know your bio and your experience with our mm. our listeners but yeah. can you talk us through what happened when you were in southeast asia um and what has driven you to start that or those two organizations that you run mm. and like you mentioned earlier you know we live our world is what we see and what we experienced and so, you know, unless you've been exposed to something else, you, you really don't know any different. And I guess growing up in Asia for a long period of time, you know, for at least 20 odd years, I, I was in, even though life was difficult, but I was still in my little Singapore bubble. 
But it was mm. only when I went down to Thailand and, you know, I was traveling with a Caucasian friend and they would ask, you know, how much he paid for me or, the, or come to me and ask me, or how much do I charge for, you know, providing services to him. It was just awful. It's like, I've got an education. I've got a good career and, you know, you can't, and, and you treat me like, I felt really crappy about mm. myself. But that also opened up my eyes, you know, and I saw how tourists were treating other fellow Asians, which I would say, in a sense, are my sisters. Mm. And I go, humanity, you know, there is equality in humanity. Or mm. there, there should be love and there should be respect. And, and mm. to see how this really young ladies were treated by foreign tourists was just unbearable for me. And I'll share, you know, one of the experiences I was just walking. And I think she was maybe 14, 15, you know, mm. with too little, <laughs> too little clothes and too much makeup. Mm. Yeah. You know, and then one of the, the men, it was about, two or three in the morning, we had a late night out um, and we were just walking back to our hotel. And then there was this drunken man that just was approaching this girl that caught my eye and he went and grabbed her and, and went, you know, how much, how much? And, mm. and then just dragged her. She didn't even have a chance to respond with a price and he just dragged her off. Mm. And I, this cannot be. And, and I was just mm -hmm. thinking, this is just one night and one person, but it's, it was just all around me. And yeah. So I went back to the room that night and thinking, I, I cannot go back to Singapore after this holiday and pretend I never saw that or that I did not have an emotional response to that experience and I cannot not do anything about it. I just yeah. had to do something. And so at the start, I didn't know what to do. Then I just Googled and saw what other organizations were available, you know, helping the course. And because I've got a hobby of baking cupcakes. Mm. So I started baking cupcakes and just doing fundraising. And that was how Cakes That Care started up. Mm -hmm. It's just baking cupcakes, fundraising, and then just donating the money to um, A21, which was the anti-trafficking organization, which I ended up being headhunted to go and set up Asia operations <laughs> for. Um, yeah, and then after that, people started to want to, you know, they have birthdays, they have weddings, or they would have parties, and they would want to give me money or pay me money to pay for them. I go, all right. And if you're happy to give me money, I'm happy to take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hmm. Wow, you you touched on something there that's actually a really interesting part of the human experience. Mm. We can all see, choose to see what's right in front of us. It, it actually takes a certain strength to be open to actually opening your eyes and seeing what's around you. Um, mm. So we talked, I mentioned before, that bubble. Um, I even think about, just walking through the streets of the city, um, maybe on a cold evening. And if you look properly, you can see 
the homeless people. Mm. You can see the people that, um, you know, don't have a safe place to live. Um, you can see them. And if the, for, for everyone you see, there are many more behind the scenes that are not maybe in that specific spot. Yeah. But you can choose not to see. You can yeah. choose to look straight ahead. You can choose to continue to do life in your bubble. And then there's the second part. There's the there's that moment in time where you go home and you go back to the safety of your own space um, or in the, your case, a hotel, and um, you can then choose. You then have to choose if you put park that information somewhere in, in your psyche and you block it up and go, oh, I saw that, but I don't have to do anything. Or you can do something. Um, and I understand that for our listeners out there, don't get me wrong, I understand that we will see things every single day that we can't necessarily make, you know, we can't change everything in the world. There's a lot going on mm. in the world, um, but there are many ways that you can make change and the mm. things that really impact you are the things that are you're calling. They're the, mm. they're, the, they're the things that are driving your purpose and the calling of why you're here. Yep. And it may be buying Christine's cupcakes and that may be the thing that you do to contribute. Um, it may be something else that you've seen that you want to change and, and that's really, it's like just incredible. I'm actually curious to understand the name. What does Generation 414 mean? to you or what, like what does it stand for? So Generation 414 is about raising up a generation that will not keep quiet about the injustices of the world. And it was really inspired by a historical story of Queen Esther. So Queen Esther is a beautiful Jewish wife of a Persian king, um, Zexus. Um, and I can't remember what how many BC that was ago, but it, it, it was at a, long time. a <laughs> long time ago. Yes. And, and so Xerxes had a chief minister called Haman and he hated the Jews and he plotted a massacre against them. And so he had the king order an annihilation of the Jews throughout the empire of Persia back then. And so um, Queen Esther's cousin Mordecai requested for Queen Esther to go and intercede on behalf of the Jewish community in Persia and persuade her king to, you know, retract the royal edict authorizing the massacre of the Jews. And Queen Esther was afraid. You know, her husband and king did not know that she was of a Jewish descent because um, she actually had a different name and then she changed it to a Persian name, Esther, so that people didn't know that she was actually a Jewish girl. And so she was afraid that if she went to see the king without being requested and then was found that she was actually of Jewish heritage, that she would lose her life. And so Mordecai challenged Esther and said, you know, in, in the book, um, in the story, he said, if you keep quiet, the people will perish. Perhaps, Esther, you were born, you know, to be queen and born for such a time like this to save your people. And so long story short, Esther gathered out her courage and went before her king to intercede for her people. And because of her bravery, the lives of the Jewish people were spared. So we are the children of this world. We are one big you know, community and one big ecosystem. So injustice is done against our men, our women, and our children. 
and we cannot keep quiet about it. So Generation 414 for me is really raising up a generation that will not keep quiet about the injustice of the world. And like you were saying earlier, we were talking, it's like my life and I'm helping you know, my nephews, my nieces, my cousins, and hoping that they will help the next generation. What we do today has an impact on future generations and the decisions we make today. And there's a lot of talk about climate change and, and that beautiful, I can't remember her name. Greta? Yes. Greta. The, the next yeah. generation, the decisions we make, the industrialization and the burning of coal and the global warming that we are experiencing today has an impact on the next generation and we must do something about it. Yeah. Mm. And that's the thing. It's it's impacting us already. All of these things are impacting us already. Mm. But when I look at my children and know that they might choose to have children of their own and the impacts of what that will continue to do if we don't make change um, in all of the different ways that we know we can actually do better um, wow, what a wonderful story and what a beautiful, like, choice of, you know, I, I genuinely, like, sometimes I will put a question to my guests and I know the answer because I've, like, researched it or whatever. I genuinely didn't know the answer to that question. I hadn't heard you share that story before and, wow, that was absolutely incredible. I'm actually going to do a bit of research myself and pop that story. I'll see what I can find and pop it mm. in the show notes if anyone wants to just learn a little bit more about it's, um, it's a beautiful yeah. story and if you go to youtube and google one night with the king there is actually mm. a beautiful movie on the story of esther wow okay well i'm gonna find that um so our listeners um can see that and i think it's actually even something i might want to share with my children because that's mm. that message is is really powerful mm. Now we've obviously already, you know, due to hearing more about your your background and even what you've shared with us already about that time in uh, that trip for you to Thailand, um, human trafficking and sexual abuse and sexual exploitation is these are not easy topics to talk about. I'm actually reflecting even internally. Um, the first episode of this season was with the founder of Brave Hearts, who um, are an organisation that um, support young people that have experienced childhood sexual abuse. I find it really interesting that you and I have just by chance had to reschedule this episode time and time again, which has meant that the last episode of this season is also mm. on the topic of sexual abuse. Yep. Um, that isn't lost on me. I'm very conscious that the universe has made that the way that it is mm. um but i think that there is still a real misunderstanding around sexual exploitation but more around human trafficking so what do you think is what do you think are the main things that people misunderstand on this topic um there is sexual abuse and that happens mm. not necessarily in the trafficking space so mm -hmm. I well I'm a survivor of abuse myself mm -hmm. and I think that's something that parents and family members need to have very honest conversations with their children about or you know to educate them about good touch bad touch 
educate mm. them that they are a safe person or parents are it's 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 ironic too because sometimes the abuser is also the parent yeah exactly um but to to really educate children be it in a home environment or in a school environment to educate children on what good touch is and what bad touch is and where mm. to speak up or where to seek help from should something happen or should something they feel uncomfortable about they do not have to bear that burden and keep mm. it to themselves because very often the abuser will say don't say or you'll get into trouble mm. yeah yeah So yeah. that there is a very important education piece that needs to be instilled within our kids to for them to have mm. courage to speak up. I think that's really really important. So that's yeah. you know child child sexual abuse not within the trafficking space, but then within the trafficking space, and it's really set over the years because of STD because of AIDS. Um, Sex tourists or you know exploiters would go. I want to be safe, and therefore I want freshly picked flowers, you know, which is a euphemism for virgins. And so there is just that many eighteen-year-old virgins before they get all exploited, and then the age gets younger and younger. So now the average age of a traffic victim is sadly only twelve. And if you go to Southeast Asia, predominantly Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, they're much younger than that. Mm, and and yeah. the worst story I heard in during a justice conference I attended was that people with money would actually pay to custom IVF a toddler or a child, an infant. Mm. For the sole purpose of sexual torture, so they know that it is untouched, completely untouched. Because very often, children, um, there are surgeries nowadays that they can kind of revirginize the child. Wow! And, and so people are like, "I want to play it safe. I've got money. I will just a bit like the handsmaid tale. I will pay for a surrogate mom, and I will pay yeah. for the IVF, and I will have an infant for my sole purpose of torture." And and that is un completely unacceptable. Well, it just it it like I'm <laughs> I'm almost running out of words. I'm trying to compose myself. Um, it bends my brain to mm. to it's there's so many things that I'm struggling to process there. Um, in the sense of obviously the age. Um, and I understand though from a like from what you've shared with me, I can understand what the theory is around seeking younger and younger and younger and the reasoning behind that, um, not the justification, mm -hmm. but the reasoning. Um, yeah. The, But to go to the extent or to have the privilege and the power and to use that privilege and power and abuse it in a way that means that there's a child brought into the world for and the sole purpose of that child is to to be abused and taken advantage of that yeah that's a step so far outside of what even I understand in the human trafficking space um and I'm sure you have many more examples like that that are just as as I've said I've used the word bubble so many times already it's so far outside of the bubble of my brain that I'm like wow I don't 
how is this even happening? And yep. I guess from a how is this happening question, is are we in the research that you're doing and the work that you're doing, are you are you identifying that this is prevalent right across the world or are we seeing, like you've mentioned Southeast Asian countries, mm. but we live in this beautiful place called Australia. I don't anticipate that we are immune from this issue. No, we're not. So a big driver for being being exposed or being more vulnerable to human trafficking is poverty. So mm-hmm. we're very privileged in Australia. Yes, we do have homeless and we have poverty over here, but compared to you know, continents like Africa or in Eastern Europe or in Southeast Asia, our poor is way better off than the poor in, yeah. in the other places that I've named. And we've got a... a not perfect, but we have a welfare system and people are able to go on Centrelink and get support. Mm-hmm. In those countries, yeah. if you have no means of earning an income, you're pretty much dead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, trafficking in Australia looks a little bit different from trafficking, per se, in Southeast Asia, which is the bulk of my experience. Over here, mm-hmm. there's a lot more labour trafficking. Yeah. Um, compared to sex trafficking. So our Aussie girls don't per se get trafficked for sexual exploitation, but we do have um, girls from other countries that get trafficked into Australia to service um, to service Australians per se. Yeah. And you're saying more in a in the sense of labor, but obviously not not excluding other means and other reasonings for the trafficking. Yep. So in with the um, Australian AFP, so Australian Federal Police, um, yes. they are big on um, what what's it? False marriages, yes. So false uh, marriages, yes. it's quite a big issue that they are able to address. So mm-hmm. a lot of underage I think in Australia the legal age for marriage is eighteen. Without, From my understanding, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And, and if you want to get married under 18, you need to have a guardian consent or a signed mm-hmm. off, yep. things like yep. that. But there are cases where children, are, you know, 11, 12 are being forced into marriages with people that are more than twice their age. Mm-hmm. And yep. in the Australian context, this is not legal, nor is it acceptable. So... Mm-hmm the Australian Federal Police are able to build a case against it and prevent that from happening to our children. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that we've got a lot of farms. And, mm. and so, we, you know, people would come in on a working holiday visa. And mm. when you're here for a year on the working holiday visa, part of the requirements is, I think, for you to do a bit of farm work and in, even though the system and the policies are set in place and that you, you do that, very often they live in poor living conditions and they may not be paid the right wages. So there is the exploitation of labour. Or it's mm. also known in restaurants, in the F&B industry, where people would work really long hours and sleep in the kitchen and may not get paid. 
or what's yeah. very commonly known over here is that we've got all the nail spas or massage mm. parlors. And mm -hmm. so, you know, how did the girls come in? What kind of conditions were they brought in? And with the massage parlors, whether they're forced to provide happy endings. Yeah. 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 So with Project Respect, when we did a mapping exercise with Victorian police um, a couple of years ago, that was pre-COVID times, I think there were about um, maybe 70 registered brothels in in Australia uh, in Victoria I can't remember the numbers but what when they mapped it based on the calls to the police and police going to investigate it was 10 times more unregistered brothels yeah. you know massage parlors and whatnots moonlighting as illegal mm. brothels so when you are out in your suburb and you see a massage parlor still opened at 11 o'clock at night ask the question why yeah yeah mm -hmm. and then there's the further question of if um those young women are you know are there by choice mm -hmm. which is the, the you know the next part of that conversation yeah uh you mentioned some of those organizations and um departments here in australia what what kind? What are you working on at the moment here in Australia? Are, they, are you are you working on any particular projects, or um, is there anything that you can share with us about what's happening here in our country? Well, pre-COVID, um, we did manage um, with the support of Daryl Hinge, we managed to get the confiscation of passports on people on the sex offender list. Um, mm -hmm. the, that bill passed through, which was great because. Really, many on the child or many on the sex offender list um, do fly into Asia to engage in child sex tourism, mm -hmm. and because yeah. you know jet, it is so cheap to get onto a Jetstar flight. Oh, definitely, a couple of hundred dollars, and you're you're out of the country pre-COVID, yep. obviously. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So to be able to push that across and get it passed as a bill was a tremendous win for us. So that kinds of reduces the exploitation of children overseas, but that still doesn't mean that our children locally in Australia are kept safe. So I think... Well, whatever. yeah, if they're staying here in Australia, then it causes, like, you can't, you literally just move a problem from one place to another. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it wasn't solving the problem. It was just moving the problem overseas back home, really. Yes, unfortunately. The irony of it. Yeah, but that's the reality of the situation. Yeah, mm, very much yeah. so. So um, that was that. And then the other you, thing was um, – oh, sorry, you were going to say something? No, you go. Finish what you were saying. Um, and then uh, in 20 oh, – I think it was – pre-COVID. No, everything pre-COVID, it's now just a blur. Everything is pre-COVID. I, I do have a question for you around COVID, but finish what you're saying first. Yeah, I can't remember whether it was 2017 or 2018 that we finally got the um, bilateral support of both parties to sign off on the Modern Slavery Act. So I remember going up to Canberra and I can't even remember what year it is now, but going up to Canberra and really celebrating that, you know, we've managed to pass through the Modern Slavery Act in Parliament in Australia. So at least we've got a framework for prosecution and to keep people accountable. Yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. 
Now, we've mentioned the word COVID a few times because we're currently in a lockdown and we're still living in this world and, you know, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, mm. Have you noticed uh, how has COVID impacted this particular space? Has it created more concerns or because the world is a little bit more closed, does that does that mean that this trafficking is not as prevalent because people can't move around as much? I guess it's hard to say. You're you're based in Australia as well, so I assume mm. you haven't left the country of late. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, how, from what you can see, are you noticing any different any key differences since COVID nineteen has yep. happened to the world? So it's. Because of the environment that we are in, like you said, people are not traveling as much. So, you know, sex tourism isn't engaged in as much. But what Mm. has happened is that they have moved it online. So our children are Mm. spending a lot more time online and perpetrators or syndicates then go online to try and engage or connect with children. Mm. And so... We've moved, you know, how we used to do face-to-face meetings and now we're on, you know, a Zoom platform. So it's the same. So rather than physically perpetrating or abusing a young person, they're doing it online. So there has been a tremendous spike. Um, Research has showed a tremendous spike in um, the dark web, activities in the dark web. Um, Pornography has increased significantly significantly. online perpetrators and children, um, reports of children being um, approached or being abused online. Mm. It's, it's, it's been significant. And the other thing is that with COVID and people losing their jobs, um, many have had to resort in prostitution in order to try and earn an income. So they may not have, you know, service clients that are overseas, but there's also still there'll always be a local demand. Yeah. So unlike us where we are in a complete lockdown and there's only five reasons to go out of your house, some mm-hmm. other countries have, you know, d- doesn't have such strict restrictions and and so um people are still able to engage in prostitution and sexual activities. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, yeah, and I have spent some time in Southeast Asia and I know that tourism, I know that certain certain income streams are what they live on and I know that none of those things are happening right now. So what is happening in those countries that they can't do the work, like the hotels and people that just can't do the work that they normally do? Um, mm. Yeah, it's a really valid point. So for our listeners who... <laughs> get the joy of listening to me talk to people about their dog walking companies or their fitness like coaching or as I said we have interviewed some people that you know in very different spaces so it's not always there's very much light and shade Mm. but I'm sure there's people that are listening to this episode um that are probably have their eyes pretty wide right now that are processing some information that they may not have heard before or may, as I said, chosen to ignore. Um, we've put it right in their ears and they may be thinking, how can I do more? So what can people do to support 
Generation Four One Four or any of the other organisations that you um, you know that you're aware of that are doing great work in this space. Yeah. So the model for Generation Four One Four is really simple. So we import products handmade by the survivors and we sell them on our online platform www.generation414.com really easy <laughs> that will be in our show notes don't worry you don't need to remember right. that Just click on the link in the show notes <laughs> yeah so really the model simple the products are made by the survivors we work on an empowerment model the more products we sell the more ladies we're able to employ and the more income we're able to provide for them and the more families will be able to keep out of poverty. So, mm. you know, jump online, buy the products, you know, they make great meaningful presents. Like I always carry my bag or wear my jewelry. And when I got they go, oh, you know, oh, such a beautiful necklace. Where did you get it? And I get to tell the story of the journey of a girl when she was on the streets and she got approached by an outreach worker and said, there is an alternative option for you. There is a better life. Would you be interested? And she'll go, but I have no skills. I don't know anything. I have nothing to offer. And they go, it's okay. We will teach you. And then, you know, they, they leave the streets and, and she goes into a, so we don't like take them off the street and put them to work immediately because that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like, don't work on the street, come and work in a sweatshop. That's not what no. this is, just for clarification. Yes. Um, it's a little bit more, um, yes. you know, supportive. Yes. So we actually have caseworkers that would actually sit down and understand, so not just the girl, but the family context on what has driven her onto the streets and what support she needs so that it is a sustainable sustainable. Um, plan for her and so you know she goes through therapy she goes for counseling and then we ask her what does she like you know does you know we give her numeracy and literacy skills and not all people like to make jewelry some girls like you know to hair and makeup and we we also have a center that we partner on the ground that provides a, a bit like a taste so the girls yep. can learn the skills. And so it's it's with the necklace, I go, there, there was a story that the ops manager on the ground told me. The girls would normally, when they come, they'll go for their therapy and then they'll just do what they're told. Their heads are down, they're just doing and they don't really talk to each other because there's just so much weight that they had to carry from the past. Yeah. But as they continue yeah. through the therapy and realize that they have value, they have purpose, mm. they have worth, that they are not their past, and that they have a bright future ahead of them, you see the darkness gets lifted off them and that this joy is replaced. The darkness is replaced by joy and, and you can see sometimes they will do something and if it's a really cool design, they will do selfies with their jewelry or what they've made. And, and and it's a tremendous journey for someone to be able to be from the streets with no hope to, I've got a skill set, I've got basic business skills, I've got literacy, I've got numeracy, and I've got a trade. And very often, many of them are not based in Bangkok. They come from rural regions of, you know, rural Thailand or 
rural Cambodia, and they can go back to their community and start a small business and empower other women within their village. And, and that is the empowerment model that we talk about, that one can help five and five can then help 25. It's micro-business. And it is so mm-hmm. important to get these people in rural, poverty-stricken communities out of that cycle. Wow. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, you not only have a better understanding of what Generation 414 do, but now you can very easily support them. And as I said, all of the details of the organisations and bits and pieces that we can share with you will be in our show notes. Um, So you can connect with Christine and the team and, and the work that they're doing and purchase a beautiful item that has such purpose and such heart and hope behind the jewellery or the bag or whatever you choose to buy. Um, So I personally know the answer to this question, but I'm really curious to see if what you choose to share with us. What is on the horizon for you at the moment? You've recently launched a project that I'm hoping you will tell our listeners all about, um, but what projects or what have you been working on and what's what's happening for you in, in the near future? Well, um, the listeners in Victoria would know that the final report and the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system was tabled in March. So this is really a once-in-a-generation opportunity to design a mental health system which meets the needs of people with mental ill health, their carers, their families, and the workforce that supports them. So I work within the mental health division in the Department of Health. The recommendations are very ambitious. Very, very <laughs> ambitious, but we need. I'm glad you're honest about that. You're like, they're really ambitious. I'm like, okay, good. Because sometimes these documents and recommendations, I'm like, really? Do they think? Oh, but I'm glad to hear that you've got a realistic approach. <laughs> it, it's, it's quite funny because I also hold the H, um, men, H person's mental health portfolio and we also had the federal H care commissioned. And so oh, I fine. had 12 and a half kilos of H care commission report delivered oh my to my goodness. house plus 14 and a half kilograms of the report. So I've got close to 30 over kilograms of report sitting on my library. Wow. <laughs> And, and, and so it is ambitious, but there is this very famous saying that if you shoot for the moon and you miss, at least you'll be among the stars. We have wow. to set our bar high. Yeah. Because yep. if we don't set the bar high, we just go for good enough and we fall short of good enough, then it is never oh, going to be so enough. <laughs> so I'd rather be... <laughs> Oh. So I'd rather be a bit more ambitious and if we, you know, don't don't meet the mark at least it's it's we're gonna push for a real really a better mm-hmm. better mental health support for people, especially with COVID and, and what people are going through. I feel it sometimes too, so I cannot imagine what the others are experiencing. Yeah. Um yeah, Definitely. so I I'm gonna try my best to operationalize the recommendations to improve the system Mm -hmm. and and I really look forward to a future where all Victorians can experience the best possible mental health and well-being so that's my day job 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a day job because you did something really cool recently. So please tell us or the listeners because I would really love them to know what you have recently launched or released. Yep. So I recently wrote a chapter in Reasons to Live, One More Day Every Day, um, volume three. So it is the third and last volume of the series. And it is a book filled with inspiring, courageous stories of people that have found joy and purpose after adversity. Um, so as the founder of Generation 414 and people that have listened to the podcast for the past 52 minutes are familiar with my passion of ending human trafficking, yet very few um, people know about my journey with my childhood abuse and trauma. So in this book chapter, I have allowed myself to be really vulnerable and share the story of my past. Mm-hmm. And I, I really hope that that sharing of story would let the reader and other people that are reading it that are experiencing similar things or have gone through similar things that have not processed them um, to really acknowledge that injustice have been done against them, but they don't have to bear that burden of that injustice, that they can let it go, that they can take controls of their lives and live free from that trauma Mm -hmm. and I really hope that my book chapter would really inspire you know everyday people and victims of trauma to seek help if they haven't already done so to take that first step of faith towards recovery and into the light and and I've got that living experience I am a living testimony of once you process through that there's so much in life so much that life can offer you and so much more that you can achieve. So it is a must-read book for anyone that's searching for hope, purpose, and reasons to live one more day every day. So if you struggle with mental health issues yourself or you're supporting a loved one who does, um, I encourage you to grab a book or a few of the books and give it to people that you know. You just never know who is waiting for a message of hope from one of these stories. Yep. Oh, that's incredible. I I've shared on with on previous episodes. I'm also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Your story resonates really with me, and and as I said, it is not lost on me that by chance the first episode of season two was with um, someone that's working in this space, yep, and that by chance. I'm sitting with another survivor and having another discussion. Um, it's very timely for me. And that message of hope, as we know, we never really know who needs to hear mm. or read the message. Um, but I know, and you know firsthand, that the moment you share your story, someone is going to take that and it's likely going to be the thing that they need to hear Mm. to get them through one more day. So that sounds incredible. We will definitely put all the details of the book also in our show notes so you can get a copy. You got a lot of things to buy, people. You gotta go (laughs) buy some jewelry and a bag and a book. Just gift them, keep them, buy multiple copies, whatever you want to do. But there's yeah, get your credit card out. It's like that, you know, just enjoy your lockdown, buy some things. It's all going to a good place. <laughs> it's called retail therapy. Very good for you. It's retail therapy, but like really good retail therapy, like the stuff that changes the world kind of stuff. Yes. <laughs> now, my last question 
And it's always a tricky one because there's so many people, but who inspires you and why? Mm, lots of people inspire me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the world, you know, as horrid as we've talked about, you know, how the mm. world, the world has throughout history has been made out of a lot of beautiful people. You know, like Esther. Esther was how many thousand years ago, but her story still resonates today about courage, about bravery, about, you know, speaking up for injustice. It's it's timeless. Mm. But who inspires me a lot is Mother Teresa. Mm. Um, throughout her life, Mother Teresa devoted herself to helping the poor. And, and the thing about Mother Teresa is she is quite small in stature and I'm really petite. I come in cute size. <laughs> You're cute size. It's not yes. small, it's not petite, it's cute. I love yeah, that. I am cute size. <laughs> like Mother Teresa. Yeah, and, and so I could like, oh, okay, she, I'm about her size. Uh, even though her stature is small, but her heart for humanity was just so huge. And, and I really like, it's like, I tell myself, when I grow up, I want to be just like her kind of thing, you know? Mm. And, and so she, she shared some really powerful words during, you know, her lifetime that really resonated with me. You know, she said, if you can't feed a hundred people, then just feed one. Mm. Human trafficking is a huge problem. And with an estimated 46 million trapped in the various forms of human trafficking today, we can't save them all. I can't save them all. And we can't change the world. But if we commit to just helping one life at a time, we would have changed the world for the person that we helped. And she also said, I alone cannot change the world, and I, but I can cast a stone across the waters and create many ripples. And that's the mission of Generation 414. I can't speak up for all the injustice of the world, but I can try and raise up a generation of people who will. And that's what RMIT University does to me every, pretty much every year. So the first year, first semester social work students that they have, they always bring me in to guest lecture to kind of inspire the kids. Mm -hmm. And I would always mm -hmm. tell them, you know, you didn't sign up for social work to be rich or to be famous. If that's what you want to do, you're in the wrong course. <laughs> you're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong room. And you're the door in is... marketing and television and media room because you're in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah, you're in the wrong room and the door is that way. Mm. So I mm. say that and I go, look, I am passionate about human trafficking, but you're in social work because there was something in you or something you've experienced to, that upset you enough to want to push mm. for change. So why yeah. are you here? Some people are, are passionate about animals. Some people love nature. Some people are passionate about perhaps mental health, like what I'm doing right now. So whatever your cause in, go and do something about it. And always remember your why because there are days where it gets so hard and you just want to give up. But if you always come back to your why, that will give you the drive to, to take a step, one step in front of the other. It's, it's a marathon. I go, it's, it's not a sprint. 
we're not here to do the 100-meter dash. We're here to do a marathon and sometimes even an ultra marathon. You may not think that you'll ever reach the finishing line, but if you just commit to putting one feet in front of another every day, you will eventually get there. And just think about the number of lives or the impact you would have made along that journey. It's not the destination, it is the journey. And then lastly, she said, we all, not all of us, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And I absolutely love that because here I am, a little cute-sized Asian woman in a suburb in Melbourne recording a podcast in the scheme of things might be small compared to Emma Watson speaking in UN, you know, in front of crowd being live telecast. But everything I do, I put my 100% love and effort into it to try and achieve the best outcome for the people I'm trying to help. And as long as whatever you're doing, you're doing it with love, that's good enough. I think that's a really good thing to end on. I think, that was, so. I think so. Um, Christine, thank you for being a guest today on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights, knowledge and personal stories and being here, being vulnerable, doing your piece and your part in the world that we're in because I know that the work that you're doing is well and truly changing lives and um and to know that you're doing it with such love is is absolutely beautiful. To our listeners, this has been a tricky one to listen to. I know that. Um, but I commend you for sticking with us, for listening to the light and shade as we've giggled about cute-sized humans. And we have also dived into some realities that are hard to hear Thank you for joining us again on another episode of She Inspires Me. We will we will speak to you on the next episode, which will be the first episode of season three. But until then, have a fantastic day and thank you for being an incredible human. Go do something filled with love and we will speak to you again soon. Thank you for joining us today and for being a part of this incredible community. Remember to hit subscribe, to share this episode with your friends and family, and to join us in our next episode to be inspired by more exceptional women.